happens to the letter of First Corinthians, chapter one, verse eighteen through chapter two. We'll be reading through verse three. I invite you to hear these words from our Holy Scriptures. Paul writes to the Christians in Corinth. He says, For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothingness things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ stands at the very center of Christianity, the crucifixion. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ was executed and died a death of shame and agony. That's kind of a strange thing to put at the center of religion, if you think about it. We don't really uh, consider that maybe a, a hospitable centerpiece sometimes. It's an odd thing. In fact, uh, there was an old documentary series. Maybe it's about 15 years old at this point. It was on PBS. It was called The Christians. Super descriptive. Uh, it noted that Christianity is the only major religion to have at its central focus the suffering and degradation of its God. At the center of our faith 
is the crucifixion, Christ and the cross. Now that stands at odds with uh, our major cultural focus. I don't know how many people out there looking in the world saying, gosh, I just, I'm looking for something with a little more suffering in it. Gosh, you know what I'm missing today? You know what I'm missing? I'm missing a little extra suffering. Our culture around us, and it even invades our churches, and we deal with it at an individual level quite frequently. We're looking for uh, enlightenment and happiness and ease. We're searching, even in our spiritual searching, the world around us is looking for a burden-free life and a path to be elevated uh, to health and wealth and prosperity. And we are drawn to those things uh, that help enrich our lives, and so it is odd to have at the center of our faith a suffering, dying Savior. And it, we can sanitize it in some ways. Uh, the cross itself right here, for example, is shiny, is pretty, it's nice, it's made of bronze. But at the center is not shiny and pretty and bronze. At the center is Christ crucified. And it's a strange thing for our world. And despite the fact that it's strange and the culture around us religiously is looking for everything else, the cross of Jesus Christ and his crucifixion looms large in the consciousness of the world. You show somebody a cross and without explanation, a majority of the time, they at least know what we're referring to. There's a quote from a a writer named Fleming Rutledge. Let me share this with you. It talks about that. She says, there have been many famous deaths in world history. We might think of John F. Kennedy or Marie Antoinette or Cleopatra, but we do not refer to the assassination or the guillotining or the poisoning. Such references would be incomprehensible. The use of the term the crucifixion for the execution of Jesus shows that it still retains a privileged status. When we speak of the crucifixion. Even in this secular age, many people will know what is meant. There is something in the strange death of a man identified as the Son of God that continues to command special attention. This death, this execution, above and beyond all others, continues to have universal reverberations. Of no other death in human history can this be said. In fact, there were many thousands of crucifixions in Roman times. But only the crucifixion of Jesus is remembered for having any significance at all, let alone world-transforming significance. In the consciousness of the world, at the center of our faith, stands the cross and Christ crucified. Over our Lenten season, for the next six weeks, we're going to take some time to slow down to consider and to meditate and to think about the crucifixion of Christ and all that it means for us. We could very easily, we we pass by it quite a bit. Uh, Jesus died for us. Very good. Let's move on. Uh, Christ died for us because he loves us, and that's true. This is all true. All of it's true. But if we pass by too quickly, we miss the beauty, the power, the horror, and the great blessing of Christ crucified. And so we're going to be spending some time talking about that and meditating on that over the next few weeks as we seek to grow in our faith. 
We read this passage from the letter of Paul to the church in Corinth. That's why it's called Corinthians. If Paul had written it to us, it might be uh, Glenvillians, but it's written to a particular group of people in Corinth. And it seems like the church in Corinth uh, was having some difficulties living their lives together. There were disputes. There was some grave sin. Uh, there was a, just some strange way of life that was getting in the way of their faith. And Paul seems to locate all of the problems in that Corinthian church. He locates it at their fixation or lack of fixation on the crucified Christ. You see, it seems like the Corinthian Christians thought that they were beyond the cross. Ah, Jesus died over there for me. Good. Now I shall eat, drink, and be merry. I can do whatever I want. We're all good. The cross was back there. It doesn't have much to do with me except it made me free. Or they thought that maybe they were above it. Ah, Jesus died. That's good. He has raised us up, and we don't have to deal with little people things like suffering and death or poor people or or uh, other things like that in our lives, because we're now above the cross. Thank you, Jesus. But Paul seems to consider that their life should be in the cross, in the cross, not above it or beyond it. That the work of Christ in us, of Christ crucified, is central to our love in Christ. In fact, he seems to consider that their lack of understanding of living their life in the crucified Christ has caused problems with their ability to love and to live. Their faith and behavior does not correspond to the greatness of God. And so he calls them back to the foundation, Christ crucified. In this letter, in the passage that we read, Paul uses a couple of interesting words to describe the crucifixion. Now, I want to talk about them today. He uses the word foolish. He uses the word scandalous. And he asserts that it is central to our lives. Paul writes, he says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Foolishness. He says again that it is foolishness to the Gentiles and the Greeks. What a word to use for the crucifixion. I want you to consider this. How many of you all love a buffet? Oh, some of y'all are just thinking it's Lent. I'm going to be nice. I gave up buffets for Lent. No, you I love me a buffet. I'm not going to lie. I'll be the first. Uh, there's a good one right over here. A buffet is like, it's like uh, you're not necessarily getting your money's worth, but you feel like you are because you could always go back and get more. A good, we love a good buffet. Americans love a good buffet. Everybody seems to love a good buffet. Uh, sometimes it seems like spirituality in our culture is like a buffet. It's, I want a little of this and a little of that and a little of that. And what we do in American culture and the people that are seeking for faith in the Western culture in general is let's find our favorite parts of every spiritual heritage to create our spiritual searching. You see, if I'm going to, uh, say, the buffet right down here and I love that chicken, but I don't love the peppers that are in it, I have the opportunity uh, to just grab the chicken and leave the peppers out. I can... Listen, I'm, I'm as healthy as can be, right? But at a buffet, I'm not going to get any vegetables. I'm not going to lie to you. It's going to be hamburger steak and gravy and potatoes and gravy and macaroni and cheese. And I'll put gravy on that too. It doesn't matter. See, at a buffet, I can do that. At a buffet, I can do that. And so you can see, if you pay attention to spirituality and the culture around us, you can see that uh, maybe I'm going to take this uplifting poem here and this uplifting prayer here, and maybe I want to empty my mind with a little Zen Buddhist meditation here, and maybe uh, I want to use some little incantations here and, and this and that, and we build our own buffet of spirituality 
Uh, and we can even do that in the Christian faith where we pick the parts that we love the most. And, and if we're thinking about uh, picking the parts that we love the most, what are we trying to do? We're trying to fulfill a, a need and a desire in our lives to, to be free, to uh, enjoy life more, to uh, have a better life, to suffer less, and to have more fulfillment. Very rarely are we going to get to the buffet and say, oh, there's a little bit of redemptive suffering. There's a little bit of what God looks like, and it looks like Christ on a cross. You see, it's foolish in the eyes of a culture like that. And I don't want to just, when I talk about the culture, you better not hear me say those people out there and not us in here, because it's something we all struggle with. We're steeped in it. We're like sitting in the, steeping in the, in the tea of culture, and it gets all in and around us. And if we're thinking about things like that, it's foolish. If I want to buy a product, I want to buy the one that's the best. I never want to hear one uh, that suffered or, or didn't make it. If I, if I want a professional, I never want to know. For example, I don't want to know my doctor how many times they failed at a thing. You know, I want, I want all the best. And here we have uh, on the buffet of spiritual options, a crucified Christ. That's foolish. You get the idea? Paul says the crucifixion is foolishness to those who are perishing. One writer made this critique of American Christianity or American spirituality as a whole. He said this, It can best be described in this way. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom of without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without a cross. And when this happens, we might have religiosity. We might have people putting... Uh, heinies in pews on Sunday morning. We might have people who know how to go to church on uh, many times a week and know people who know that they give in the offering plate and people who maybe even stop cussing, smoking, and drinking. It doesn't mean they have faith in Christ. We might, if, if that's the way uh, that our faith goes, that we might have uh, encouragement, we might feel better, we might have spirituality, but we do not have Christianity. For at the center of Christianity is Christ crucified. It's foolish to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. You can see how Paul would describe it as foolish to some, and Paul also describes it as scandalous. He writes this in the first chapter, For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews. The word stumbling block is also the word scandal from the original language, and maybe in your translation it said so. Scandalon, stumbling block, scandalon, scandal. It's a scandal. How so? How so? In our common discussions about the cross, we might very well say things like, uh, Christ died for you, which is very true, or that Jesus died because he loves you, which is also very true. But there are statements that that are a broad stroke. Both things are true and there's nothing wrong with them whatsoever. They're, They're a proclamation of Christian life, but they don't capture the horror of the crucifixion. It's scandalous. You see, we have a bright and shiny cross. The cross on Calvary, you can imagine, was not quite so bright and so shiny. We wear the crosses on our necks and they are usually free from a crucified anybody. We see a cross and we know, but 
they don't always capture the horror and reality of the cross. You see, this wasn't just a death. It was not just a gentle passing into that good night. It was not a, oh, bless his heart, he died peacefully in his sleep. This was not a, oh, our Lord, he lived a good life here on the earth and it was time for him to go back to heaven. It's not like that at all. This was an execution. This was the world that that was created through Christ. It was the world saying, you, our God, you, you have no right to live, no right to exist, no right to be here. The Lord's body was beaten and broken and pierced and hung, bloody, excruciating and ghastly. Dehumanizing, brutal, barbaric. Did you know that they didn't just use crucifixion, nailing to a cross as a method of execution because they weren't technologically advanced enough to find a more humane way to do it? You realize that? It's not like, oh gosh, if only we had come around and discovered lethal injection, we would have found a more humane way to take care of our criminals. It was designed to be like it was humiliating and shameful. I was in Israel a couple years ago walking uh, along the Via Dolorosa, which is the path of suffering, the traditional path in which we understood that Christ took uh, from prison to the cross. And there are two places we visited that are likely sites of the execution, uh, the crucifixion of Jesus. It's hard to say at this point in history, but two places that are likely the sites of uh, the crucifixion. And you know what both of them have in common? They're in public. They're in public. Uh, one of them, the most uh, likely site, is uh, just outside the, the city walls. Um, it's now encased and enshrined, but out, it was outside the city walls. It would have been right along the main street, designed that way. Not just for the taking of life, but the taking of one's humanity. For people to scorn and shame and to take away who you are as a person so that you don't become a, a human being dying there. You become uh, a leftover meal for the buzzards. It's it's a horror. Do you see how it's scandalous? you see how it's scandalous? It was the act of humanity who took its God into captivity and said, you don't have the right to live. You see, this isn't talk for polite company. (laughs) Sorry. I should have put that in the RSVP. When you come come to church here this Sunday, you're going to hear, my goodness, aren't you glad some of you guys didn't eat yet? It's not something you want to think about. It's not something you want to think about when you're like, let me plan out today my path to enlightenment. Let me figure out how I will have my life fulfilled. We don't want to think about. It's a scandal. You can imagine the earliest Christians, those who were first following Jesus, when they saw what had happened, that that it was a dehumanizing, scandalous situation. Yeah, I, I follow God. I follow that guy. You can imagine in the earliest Christian proclamation, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, Jesus died on the cross, but what a great blessing he could give you. Just give your life to Jesus, and we do that a lot. Jesus died for your sins so that, oh, what a wonderful, glorious life you could have, and and we pass over it. Because you know why we do? Because it's scandalous. Because we have a tendency to sweep that which is uh, scandalous under the rug and to pass over it, yet it's described by Paul as the power of God. Why, Why does that matter? There's a man named uh, Jürgen Moltmann. Uh, that's a fun name, by the way. If you are, maybe you have family having children, you can suggest the name Jürgen. But he's a theologian. And I, I, his theology, his reading is great, but what I want to tell you about is a powerful experience that he described. You see, Moltmann and uh, some of his other colleagues were involved in the battles in World War II. And they... Uh, saw the atrocities and participated in atrocities, and they they were shattered and broken. And he describes this one time uh, or this one season of his life where he was with uh, his 
colleagues back at the seminary after they had gone through these atrocities. He said, we shattered and broken survivors, our lives were restored by lectures on the crucifixion. He said, a theology which did not speak of God in the sight of one who was abandoned and crucified would have nothing to say to us then. You see what he's saying? He's saying that the cross spoke to him because it's not God up here and my suffering is down here. God has no idea. God has nothing to say to me. But instead, what the crucifixion proclaims, the reason that while it might be scandalous is it's the power of God, is you and I, our lives are full of scandal. And not just scandalous things, but difficult things, but stumbling blocks, things we want to sweep under the rug, the grief, the things that we've done, the things that have been done to us. They're so scandalous and swept under the rug. But our God who came in Jesus Christ is Christ crucified, who will go even into the scandal. And that means that it can speak to us. God doesn't just sit up here. God for the good, God for the great, God for those who are blessed and wonderful. If God could not be spoken of in the light of one who has abandoned and suffered, God would have nothing to say to me. But God has everything to say to us. Because even the scandal of humanity, Christ knows. So foolish, sure. Scandalous, yes. But Paul asserts it is central. The cross might be foolish to some, and it might sound scandalous, but it is central to our faith. And let me give you a couple of examples. So just take a look at the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. All of those pages at the beginning of our New Testament, all of those words and pages are written under the shadow of the cross. You turn, for example, right in the middle of the Gospel of Mark, right halfway through. The rest of it is about Jesus journeying towards his death. Everything is read in the light of the crucifixion. Every one of the Gospels climaxes at the crucifixion. And a majority of the the descriptive areas in the Gospels, more time is spent in some of them on describing the events that lead up to Jesus' crucifixion than anything else. It's like uh, the Gospel of Mark says immediately, 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 and eclipse and eclipse and eclipse, and all of a sudden it slows down. You see... The crucifixion is central to the Gospels. The proclamation of the early church was Christ crucified. Paul's letters, like we just read, are colored by the message of the cross. The only word used in connection with the entire span of Jesus' life in the Apostles' Creed, for example, has to do with the cross. Now, y'all remember, y'all are still awake, right? Y'all remember we said the Apostles' Creed a few minutes ago. I know you lost an hour, but you were there for that, right? Yeah, okay. It says this, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, somebody, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified. Then he's dead and buried. The whole span of Jesus' life is summed up with the terms suffered and crucified. And the whole scope of this traditional proclamation of Christian faith. It doesn't talk about... uh, Sweet shepherds and little baby Jesus. Born of the Virgin Mary, he took his first steps at the age of one. Here's a lock of his hair from his first haircut. This is his rattle and his first lost tooth. Here's his wonderful teaching and all of the wonderful things he did and the man he raised from the dead 
and the fishes and loaves that he shared with 5,000 people, all of his life in the Apostles' Creed is summed up with suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified. At the center of the Apostles' Creed, at the center. And, and there is the enduring symbol of our faith, the cross. It's not the cradle. It's not fish. It's not loaves. It's not even an empty tomb, though they are all symbols. The central universal symbol of our faith is a cross. Paul says to the Corinthian church, you are so wise. You are so great. But I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It matters. It matters. Because it is the power of of salvation. Something happened, and we'll talk more about this over the course of weeks. Something happened on the cross that opened the door for you and me to be saved from our sin and the power of death. Without it, there is nothing. Without it, there is nothing. It is the power of our salvation. And it's not just something we look back on and say, wow, Jesus died on the cross, thank goodness for my sins. It's meant to be, and Paul will bear this out for us, it's meant to be a pattern of life. We are meant to live a life patterned by the crucifixion. Those of us who claim Christ, I want you to say this word with me, cruciform. Cruciform. One more time, cruciform. A cruciform life patterned after the cross. Because we know we don't live in a world that is without suffering. We know we don't live in a world where we are all entirely perfect. We live in a world where there is, where we continue to have to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ that say daily take up your cross and follow me. Jesus himself, talking about the Christian life, described the fact that we would need to live a life patterned after the cross where we allow parts of us to die with Christ. As Paul says, I was crucified with Christ. As we continue to let our old self, our fallen self, our dead self, our sinful self be crucified with Christ, carrying the burdens of all that until we come into final victory with Christ. That we are not to do as the Corinthians did and say, I'm sorry you're so poor and you're late to communion, but we already ate all of it. To rise above those who suffer and those who are poor, but to be In solidarity with them, we take up our cross and live the way of hurt and suffering. There cannot be forgiveness for the world without suffering. There cannot be atonement in the world without blood. There cannot be sunrise without the sunset. There cannot be joy without the fear and reality of loss. For Christians, the crucifixion is not just something that we look back on. It's something that is the pattern of our lives It energizes us. It motivates us by its power. It upholds us. It secures the promise of the future because we know that through the crucified Christ that all things come into existence. And so what I want to call you today to do is two things. As we begin this season of Lent, I want to invite you to consider, meditate upon, read about, and pray with the image in your mind of the crucifixion. There's power there. Let's, not, let's, let's take some time to take in. Not the pat answers, but take in the question, God, what have you done here? What does this mean for our lives? And so over the next weeks, we'll do that here in church, and I'm going to invite you to do that as well. But I also want to invite you to consider, are you living a Christian life patterned 
around the cross. Do you also, with Paul, desire to know nothing other than Christ and him crucified? The scriptures call it the bedrock of our faith. Are we living the cruciform life? What is it about your life that you need to pick up and bear like the cross? What is it in your life that needs to be crucified with Christ? Where are you avoiding difficulty in your life? Where are you avoiding those who suffer? Where are you not allowing yourself, as the Bible would call it, to die daily so that you can rise with Christ? Where is it that you are numbing down all of the pain in your life instead of just giving it over to the cross? Where are you avoiding self-sacrifice on behalf of the Lord and on behalf of others that would make the world a better place? How can you daily pick up your cross and follow Christ? This is the invitation for you. And over the course of the weeks, we'll explore other areas. For example, how does the cross and the crucifixion, what does it have to do with my suffering? and the suffering of the world. What happened on the cross to save us for our sins? And what does the cross have to do with eternity? We'll be talking about those things. But let's seek to live the cruciform life. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you, O God, that you have chosen to show yourself in the image of Christ, not just in the beauty of his life, but in the reality of his crucifixion. Help us, O God, to see the ways in which we can learn be formed and live in the example of our Lord that we might be redeemed to the uttermost. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close-